Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser. This is Sariu. I'm sitting here stunned at listening to this so closely at the artistry that we're hearing. Um, I probably would have never said that uh, at any time before this, but because I've kind of been studying them musically for the last year, um, and in the context of the times and today, I'm just sitting here sort of stunned. But uh, of course, what you just heard were uh, the trio of Barry, Maurice, and Robin Gibb, collectively known as the Bee Gees. Um, we played two songs. Uh, one is a song called To Love Somebody, uh, which was on their 1967 uh, debut album. Uh, and interestingly, that song was written for Otis Redding, uh, who they had met on a trip to New York. And uh, sadly, Otis was, uh, of course, killed in a plane crash uh, during that year and never ended up recording that song. But uh, Barry Gibb has always said that that is one of his uh, favorite songs. And of course, that song has been recorded by so many other artists um, and has kind of become a classic, although not as sort of well-known when uh, in the pantheon of sort of Bee Gees uh, songs. And of course, uh, the second song is the instantly recognizable Night Fever, which uh, was a Bee Gees song that was written uh, on for a soundtrack called Saturday Night Fever. And in fact, they ended up, um, that song and their music ended up naming uh, the movie, which ended up breaking so many records and was nobody had ever seen anything like it, kind of like a Star Wars type of phenomenon um, and uh, really ended up kicking off uh, sort of a movement, uh, an era, uh, and kind of cemented the Bee Gees um, in this sort of pantheon of superstars. Um, they had actually written the songs for Saturday Night Fever uh, in a really short period of time. They were actually writing for another record and uh, their manager, Robert Stigwood showed up and said, Hey, um, I've just bought the rights uh, to this story that we're going to turn into a movie, which was really about uh, the sort of um, kind of B and T crowd in New York uh, that was coming into, uh, well, not even into New York, into New York city to dance. And disco was becoming this, this sort of craze and uh, they wanted to get music written for it. And the Bee Gees, kind of banged out a bunch of songs. Um, like they asked for like five songs, you know, five good songs and the Bee Gees like gave them eight <laughs> great songs. And, um, you know, the songs that came out of that writing session, of course, ended up going on to really kind of uh, creating sort of the legend uh, that is the Bee Gees. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the, the, this particular song actually lent its name to the movie. Um, I think what they had was uh, Saturday Night, and uh, the Bee Gees song was Night Fever, and so they ended up naming song, sorry, the movie Saturday Night Fever. But to take a step back, um, we're going to talk tonight about the extraordinary story of the Bee Gees, uh, an English group. Uh, which we think of, at least I thought of for many, many years as Australian, because that's what they're sort of, they sounded Australian, they're sort of associated with Australia, but they were actually English and they moved to Australia. Uh, three brothers, actually five siblings, uh, Barry, 
Maurice and Robin, who made up the Bee Gees, the tree of the Bee Gees, uh, their younger brother, Andy. And they also had an older sister named Leslie that people uh, don't know about. But it's interesting because she was also a very talented singer and would uh, step in and provide backup vocals. And so there is sort of... Uh, uh, tape of her around, uh, but she sort of largely stayed in the background. Um, but this is an extraordinary story because the Bee Gees, people don't realize uh, how successful they are. They are like one of the top five or six best-selling, uh, most successful groups and songwriters of all time. And that is mind-blowing. And the reason it's mind-blowing is because for all of their talent and artistry, there's been a kind of, you know, they've sort of been the butt of jokes too for many decades. I will say that I was a little kid when this music came out and I do remember it being on the radio. And I do remember feeling like, you know, like they were really strange looking. I would see this guy that looked like a centaur, Barry Gibb with like the hair and, you know, the medallions and a little scary with the falsetto voice coming out of him. And you would hear this music everywhere, and they sort of seemed like a joke even back then. And then, of course, if you look at throughout the decades, you know, people always sort of uh, uh, laugh a little bit at disco. But uh, really, kind of, the Bee Gees were never kind of taken that seriously, even though people love their music, always puts you in a happy mood. Um, almost every, you know, party or bar mitzvah or birthday, there's always sort of a BG song in the mix if there's a dance floor and they're playing dance music, um, you know, especially if it's like throwback to the 80s or the disco era. And yet they never were accorded the respect that the Beatles or Michael Jackson uh, or the one or two Elvis Presley, the, you know, literally the two or three other names in that pantheon. And in thinking about it, I had to think it was because they became so closely associated with disco. There was a backlash that we're going to talk about that happened uh, after uh, they shot to stardom because it really kind of was overnight. It happened over the course of a year. They'd always been famous, but their superstardom came sort of during the disco era. And there was a backlash after that. And so the way that they looked and the fact that they were always kind of uh, associated with disco and the falsetto, I think altogether, the fact they were brothers, they were also really kind of um, very hardworking, simple folks. They didn't end up in the kind of, uh, you know, scandals that you would see with people, you know, uh, in the 60s and 70s, the types of things that you were expecting from rock stars. Uh, they worked very hard. They were prolific songwriters. And so I think altogether that kind of gave them the sort of reputation and aura of kind of not being as cool or as uh, talented or artistic, when in fact, that was absolutely not the case. And the numbers prove that out. The number of number one singles that they've had was surpassed only by the Beatles. Uh, and I believe one other artist, uh, they had 25 top 10 singles, top 10, they had top 10 biggest selling, they were one of the top 10 biggest selling groups of all time. They sold about 200 million records worldwide, um, 20 plus albums, uh, five Grammys for Saturday Night Fever, uh, which sort of marked that whole disco and dance age. In 1997, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, along, uh, so sitting alongside of Elvis Presley, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, Garth Brooks, and Paul McCartney. Um, Barry Gibb 
is basically one of the most prolific songwriters that has ever existed. Uh, together, the Bee Gees have written about uh, over a thousand songs. And just for comparison, Paul McCartney uh, is reputedly put together 500 to 700 songs. Um, Barry is considered the second most successful songwriter in history, Paul McCartney number one, and he shares uh, records with Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Uh, most consecutive Billboard Hot number one hits, which is shocking because people don't think of the Bee Gees in the same way they think of the Beatles. Um, and then when you really start to think, it's, it's really, really shocking that they have not been accorded sort of the same respect. Um, you know, Barry Gibb uh, has had a 60 year career. He was knighted in 2018. Uh, he also uh, was in 1994 inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame along with his uh, late brothers. They had ended up passing away by that time. Uh, and uh, I think also won British awards in 1997 for outstanding contributions to music. Uh, in 2002, uh, the Bee Gees got a, a Commander of the British Empire Award, so it's the most excellent order of the British Empire. He is Sir Barry Gibb. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the list of accolades and awards go on and on and on. But what you need to know is that these guys rank up there with the best of them. Um, and when we say the best of them, we're talking about four or five artists in the world. And yet, I would be shocked if many people would, would know that. Most people would say Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, the Beatles, uh, and maybe stop there, right? Um, even the Stones, who we think of as sort of ubiquitous, don't reach that pantheon. Um, and the Bee Gees are there. And so it's quite extraordinary. So, um, you know, if we think about, you know, I, I was laughing because when I was doing a little bit of reading about this there, uh, they've had a serious and very prolific work ethic. And uh, their sister, Leslie, uh, talked about them and said, oh, my God, my brothers are the most boring people in the world. And this is what she said. She said, Maurice, he's sweet and quiet. Um, she said, Robin, he's extra quiet, so boring. When we go to a club, he would honestly dress up in his shirt and tie and duffel coat like he was going off to a funeral or something. He'd never move from his table uh, with one little glass of wine in front of him all night. And she said, Barry, Barry's the old man. Um, she said he was born old. He was such a stooge. He used to pull me up by my miniskirts and say, you're not going out like that, are you? He just never went out. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is these guys were so straight and so straight laced. They had very little of the kind of scandals, as I mentioned, that you saw in those decades. Um, very little entry. They did get involved with alcohol and drugs, but it wasn't at the level that, uh, you know, you would hear about with artists of their caliber. And compared to the other stars of their day, they came off as very normal, humble modest um, and straight. Um, and, you know, when you think about them musically, of course, uh, some of the things that set them apart were that amazing falsetto, right, which came from Barry. And we're going to talk a little bit about where that actually came from. I think also some interesting facts about them. Um, they are actually one of these groups that is truly British. Ethically, they are pure Irish, Scottish, and English, and I thought that was of Irish, Irish, Scottish, and English ancestry. I thought that was really interesting. 
Um, and the fact that you have these three brothers, uh, you know, that are singing together with these harmonies that are just extraordinary. Um, people were just thrown, uh, you know, they were thrown for a loop when they heard them singing because they came together so beautifully to the point that they sounded like musical instruments when they were singing, just their voices. And of course, as many brothers do, uh, there are many brother acts, you know, in the world, the Jonas Brothers and Oasis, and they all have, you know, uh, uh, little tits or big tits. And so these three argued a lot as brothers. They uh, fell apart. They came together. Um, and uh, it's, it's very interesting. We'll go into all of that. Um, there were times when uh, one of the brothers would get upset. It was mostly Robin and Barry that were sort of uh, often arguing for supremacy. Um, and uh, I think there was a point where Robin ended up leaving the group uh, and there were hilarious headlines, um, which I will try to find and share with you uh, that was, that were like sort of in the papers that was like Barry Gibbs says, Robin is rude. You know, and they were like all over sort of the tabloids. Um, but um these guys were, as I mentioned, uh, folks that were in a pantheon with people like Michael Jackson, who, by the way, uh, Michael Jackson was very close to Barry Gibb. And uh, in fact, uh, right before sort of the allegations of the child molestation and stuff happened for Michael, uh, Barry recalls that Michael stayed with him. But he would often go to Miami where they were based and stay with them. And uh, Barry Gibb says he was just cute and he would giggle. He loved drinking wine. He would sleep on the floor just to get away from all of the brouhaha at the hotel and would end up sitting there and watching sort of the hordes of fans that were uh, around his hotel waiting for him to come out. And meanwhile, he was sort of sit sitting on the kitchen floor, a little drunk, uh, and he said that he would sleep over. And it's interesting, Barry says that uh, I never talked to him about the allegations uh, that came up. He said we, he was just a good friend. Uh, we enjoyed talking about music. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think he felt safe in our home. Um, the Bee Gees had periods where they were living in the United States. They went back and forth between the UK and the United States. Barry and his wife, Linda Gibb, eventually became U.S. citizens. Uh, and by the way, they've been married for 51 years, which is incredible. Um, but uh, he was married once before, but uh, he married Linda Gibb. His wife was a Miss Edinburgh. And uh, they got married uh, fairly young and they've been together. They had five kids. Um, but um, these guys were, you know, when you think about them, they were one of the few groups in history that uh, not only produced, uh, wrote and performed uh, pop music on their own accord. They had six straight number one hits, number one songs in every decade. They did this for many others, too. Um, and as prolific songwriters, in times when they were having uh, slumps, they were writing music for many, many other artists. Um, and these artists included folks like Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, Dionne Warwick. Um, the list goes on and on. Um, and there were their compositions have also been recorded by other artists um, if they weren't written specifically for them. Everybody from, and this is such a diverse list, it's incredible, uh, Janis Joplin, Luther Vandross, Elvis, Olivia Newton-John, Celine Dion, Wyclef John, Frankie Valli, Tina Turner, Al Green. I mean, that is a crazy diverse list um, that has performed their music. Um, but um, if we want to dig a little bit deeper 
into who these folks were, I'd like to take you back to the beginning where these three young men that were uh, born in England ended up moving to Australia along with their father, who was also uh, a musician. Uh, and uh, they started to realize that they had uh, a musical talent and they started a band called the Rattlesnakes. Uh, and uh, they, they realized that they had this really beautiful natural harmony. Uh, there was Robin and uh, Maurice are twins and uh, Barry is older. And so they all started to sing together. And then, um, you know, this was uh, probably around 1958. They started to perform in Australia, uh, sort of at small venues. They were performing as children uh, on TV shows, uh, doing like little publicity stints and things. And the really funny old black and white videos of them all over YouTube. Um, in 1967, the family returned to the UK. They started to gain some fame in Australia by this time. And so they wanted to sort of take it to the next level. And they decided they wanted Brian Epstein, who is uh, who was the manager for the Beatles. So Brian Epstein is interesting. He's considered the fifth Beatle. And um, he is uh, also considered to have been instrumental in how successful the Beatles became. He ended up dying of a brain tumor. He was also gay, which was something that was not really often talked about in those days. Uh, so he wasn't uh, out, but um, he was known as this phenomenal music manager and they really wanted to have Brian Epstein manage them. So they sent a demo tape and there's a letter and that's all floating around the internet. And uh, Brian Epstein got it and was like sort of busy, listened to it and said, yeah. Uh, and when his assistant said, what do you want to do with this tape? Um, uh, Brian looked at it and said, let's give it to Robert Stigwood. Uh, and Robert was his partner. So uh, Robert Stigwood listened and was blown away at the harmonies, just thought they were phenomenal and ended up investing in them very heavily. Uh, he thought that they were going to be the next Beatles. Um, again, they were famous in Australia by this point. Um, but I want to play you a little clip of what Robert Stigwood says, uh, how he met them. This is, I think, I believe it was on the Merv Griffin show. Uh, but it's, it's kind of funny. He's sitting there with the Bee Gees and, uh, this is basically, he says, this is how, uh, he discovered them. So that's a tiny little clip of Robert Stigwood. Uh, interesting fact, he was managing Cream, which of course was Eric Clapton, the great Ginger Baker, the drummer, uh, and, uh, and then eventually and on, went on to uh, manage Eric Clapton. And Eric always jokes about the fact that he was quite jealous because Robert Stigwood was paying a lot more attention to the Bee Gees. So he took the Bee Gees under his wing. Uh, when Brian Epstein ended up dying uh, of a brain tumor, uh, Robert Stigwood expected that he would be made sort of the main manager and end up managing the Beatles. That did not happen. So he was pretty upset about that. And so he ended up splitting with the management company and starting RSO, which was Robert Stigwood. I forget what the O stands for, uh, but uh, ended up starting his own company, took Clapton and the Bee Gees with them, and then exclusively uh, managed uh, those guys. So um, 
the Bee Gees, uh, interestingly, had a song called Massachusetts, uh, which is kind of funny. That became quite famous. Um, and uh, it's, it's a sweet song. We're not going to play it tonight, but uh, you can find versions of it all over the Internet. Um, and it was something that um, became their first number one hit in the UK. Um, and they wrote it again for someone else, uh, but ended up uh, singing it themselves. And ironically, they'd never been to Massachusetts. They just really liked the fact that there are a lot of S's um, in the, in the uh, 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 name. And they, you know, some of the reasons that they gave about why they wrote this song is there was a song called San Francisco that was written by Scott McKenzie. Um, and I actually opened a show uh where I was interviewing uh, Dr. Srinivasan, who happens to be my mother, with San Francisco because it sort of was her era. Um, but they had written the song in response to San Francisco and all the flower children going out to California. They said, we're going to write a song about Massachusetts. So just imagine, these guys have really never been to Massachusetts. Uh, they probably have no idea what Massachusetts is like. I'm sitting in Massachusetts right now. and so But they wrote this beautiful song. Um and so uh, they were getting famous and uh, the fame started to get to their head. And so at this point, Robin Gibb uh, starts, you know, kind of uh, rattling the cage, decides to leave the group, releases a bunch of solo hits. Uh, and, um, you know, this happened throughout sort of the um, life of the Bee Gees career, where one would get into a fight with the other and leave as they were becoming more famous. Um, and it's it's sort of interesting uh, because... Uh, you know, uh, Barry talks about how once they started getting famous, um, it was sort of difficult uh, for the brothers to remain um, as close as they were. Uh, he says, when we became famous, I stopped knowing Maurice and Robin. We stopped living the same life. And uh, you have, uh, uh, I think it was Maurice that said, I had six Rolls Royces uh, by the time I was 21. So their fame really kind of, um, you know, created this, they were thrown into this world all of a sudden. And the competition between Robin and Barry uh, went, you know, through the roof with Maurice that was sort of in between. They all wanted to be stars. Um, and these are three boys that grew up together and sang together. And there's always that kind of that sibling rivalry sort of under the surface, but it kind of exploded once these guys got famous. Um, and so they were having these little tips and then they come back together um, but being brothers, you know, as the Jonas brothers and uh, the Gallagher brothers will will attest to is, uh, you know, not so easy, especially when you're working in these creative situations. Um, as I mentioned, there were some really funny headlines during those time. You know, Barry says Robin extremely rude. That would be like on the cover of something like the National Enquirer uh, and uh, wants to bathe in the spotlight while we stand in the shadows. Um, and at the same time, all three of them often say we were more like triplets um, and we loved each other. And yes, we fought, but we sang wonderfully together. Um, and so as sort of they were going through this journey of, you know, releasing music, which was kind of folk and folk rock in 1960s, really had nothing to do with kind of the disco they would eventually become known for. Um, they started to develop along with the fame, as you can imagine, uh, some problems with drugs and alcohol, uh, not again to the extent where they ever kind of went off the scene, but maybe one of them would drop out. Um, and the others would all continue in, in different sort of various solo forms. Um, but what you started to see was uh, they had had this sort of momentum and they were doing really well. And then it kind of all started to slow a little bit. 
So what happens? Well, these guys end up deciding that um, they're going to continue and uh, look at recording another album in the hopes that they can kind of uh, revive their careers and uh, end up um, going to this chateau to record music. And that's where um, Robert Stickwood contacts them and says, hey, I have uh, bought the rights to this story uh, that you're going to make into a movie. Um, we've got this guy, John Travolta, who was at that time a movie, not a movie star, but a uh, television star. He was on a show called Welcome Back, Cotter. He's going to star in it. It's sort of about these folks uh, that live in and around kind of uh, Manhattan that are uh, really into disco. And uh, we want to, um, we want you to write the music for it. And uh, so uh, they were like, they said, would you do it? Uh, Would you write us a few songs? And so they said, sure. And apparently they ended up um, kind of banging out these songs, like one after the other, pretty quickly, uh, which is sort of extraordinary when you think about it, because um, there have already been uh, kind of observations that they wrote unlike any other group. Many producers and um, folks that were in the studio with them said, I've never seen anything like it. They're so fast um, and they do things so quickly um, that um, it's sort of extraordinary to watch. Um, So um, this, of course, ended up being sort of the soundtrack uh, for Saturday Night Fever. And I think in places on the Internet, you can actually hear like parts of that original tape. Of course, when Stigwood and his partners got the tape, they were totally blown away um, and basically were like, all right, we need to, uh, you know, have them put these songs like all of the songs on the album. And so um they ended up, sorry, there is a siren in the background, so I hope everybody's okay. Um, but they sort of kind of did this because they weren't really breaking through in the U.S. And, you know, things were kind of becoming a little stagnant for them. And they were kind of having these on again, off again fights and all these problems. So they went ahead and wrote these. And so they didn't think very much of this. Uh, they just went ahead and wrote these songs. But what happened was, of course, as we know, lightning struck. Um, Saturday Night Fever opened on uh, December 12th, 1977. uh, And between Xmas and New Year's, 750,000 copies were sold. Uh, By January of 1978, just not even like a month later, it was the number one album in America. Uh, And as a result... 200 radio stations end up uh, becoming disco format. Um, And they ended up breaking so many industry records, uh, best-selling soundtrack of all time at that time. Today, it's one of the top five top-selling album until Thriller broke that record. Uh, Fourth top-selling album uh, uh, until as of 2010. Um, And it was really the catalyst in their career. And they weren't expecting this, right? Um, And they only got involved, really, after Sigwood kind of desperately needed a few songs for the movie. Um, And um, it's what's also another little interesting fact is that as the movie was being shot, Travolta was not dancing to their music. He was dancing to something else. Um, It was not, and I forget exactly who it was, but he was actually not dancing to the music that ended up actually becoming the soundtrack. Um, 
So I thought that was sort of funny. And they really kind of did it because they were sort of in a, in a rut. And disco was already big by that time, but Saturday Night Fever sort of extended the life of that trend. Um, and uh, it put, there were songs like, you know, How Deep Is Your Love, uh, which is, uh, it's just a beautiful song. We're going to play it. It's just such a beautiful love song and imminently hummable. I find myself humming that song all the time these days. Staying Alive, of course, uh, Night Fever, all of them hit number one in the U United States. And uh, uh, How Deep Is Your Love was number three in UK. Uh, number uh, Staying Alive was number four in the UK. Saturday Night, uh, Night Fever was number one in the UK. Um, and they charted all over the world. Uh, that's really starting the uh, um, the BG sort of phenomenon. Um, they also wrote, uh, as I mentioned, songs for other people, which became number ones, uh, like uh, for Yvonne Ellison. Uh, uh, her uh, forget what her last name is, uh, but it's, I think it's Ellenin or Ellison. She wrote "If I Can't Have You." Another they wrote "If I Can't Have You," which is another disco hit. It was the B side of uh, "Staying Alive." Um, and uh, they wrote a couple of different versions of More Than a Woman, which was another one of their songs. Um, so really between that period of Xmas 1977 to September 1978, um, seven songs that were written by them uh, hit number one for 27 of 37 consecutive weeks. Uh, and uh, they were performed, Some, you know, some of these songs were performed by them or by others. This is really extraordinary sort of, feet and period uh, in history. And some of that, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking some of that was probably because we just didn't have choice, right? In those days, everybody listened to the radio. Everybody got their music from the radio. Um, and so you had one outlet. It's not like now where you might be listening to Spotify. I might be listening to SoundCloud. Some people might be listening to the radio. So we have different sources, uh, so many different genres today. But I think um, back then, the radio was the conduit. And I often think not only were they phenomenally talented and uh, kind of uh, a, a moment of lightning striking at the right time, but also uh, there weren't that many channels. Uh, there wasn't that much choice. Um, and so it sort of became... Uh, kind of ubiquitous. And as, and as I said, as a child, I do remember hearing all of this music all the time in the background in people's cars. Uh, I remember singing it. Um, and that sort of um, that image that is seared into all of our memories of the three of them with like, um, you know, their shirts open down to their navels, hairy chest, big medallion, uh, Barry Gibb looking like a centaur. I think that is the best sort of image for him, by the way. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the other two brothers flanking him. I mean, it's got, it was just like another iconic image, the poster of Farrah Fawcett, but it was everywhere. I'm, I'm looking at sort of, there's just so many statistics to share of how big that this record was. And a lot of this stuff was happening for the first time since the Beatles. Um, the other thing that I should point out is they had kind of the same hysteria around them with girls and fans like running after them and breaking into their home. And they, they talk about it being a little bit scary for them. Um, but, uh, you know, it's incredible when you think at the same time, they had five songs that they wrote that were simultaneously in the U.S. top 10 had not been seen since the Beatles. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, Barry uh, actually broke, 
McCartney and Lennon's record by becoming the only songwriter to have four consecutive number one hits in the United States. Um, you know, two years of Grammy Awards were generated. Uh, they won five Grammys in total uh, for Producer of the Year, Album of the Year, two Best Pop Performance by Group, Best Vocal Accompaniment for Two or More Voices. Um, and when Saturday Night Fever uh, sort of, uh, when they needed to come up with their next record, but they that yielded some great hits that were also disco, Too Much Heaven, uh, which was a U.S. number one and a U.K. number three, Tragedy. Uh, which is one of my favorite songs, U.S., U.K., number one, uh, Love You Inside Out, U.S., number one, U.K., number 13. Again, same disco theme, the falsettos. Um, and so they were breaking record after record, uh, beloved by dancers, uh, Staying Alive was sort of the sequel to the Saturday Night Fever. Uh, and again, um, was something that kind of went along sort of this dancing disco kind of, you know, polyester suits and medallions theme. And I want to play you uh, one of my favorite songs, very, uh, I think, uh, representative of that era. It's a song called Tragedy. uh, And uh, I'm going to play a little bit of that for you. So here is Tragedy by the Bee Gees.
So that is one of my favorite songs. Um, you know, I thought it was also worth mentioning um, that these guys, um, when they uh, wrote this, they had sort of no idea that these songs were going to become sort of as big as uh, they they did become. Uh, they kind of just, you know, wrote them really quickly for their manager. They never read the script. Uh, they just shared a few songs in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, the movie, as I mentioned, ended up getting named after uh, one of their songs. Um, and one of the things that people don't realize is really the song sort of drove the movie. And people were dancing in the aisles at the theater. Uh, the Bee Gees were just shocked because it was just a soundtrack. Um, and that really became a cultural phenomenon. You know, I can't stress that enough. You know, I think sometimes we forget uh, those of us that were alive at that time. I mean, I was a little kid, so I probably didn't, you know, uh, I probably wouldn't have registered anyway, but the truth is it was everywhere. Um, you would hear it on the radio everywhere. Um, and there were images of the Bee Gees and John Travolta and that iconic image of Travolta with his arm up on a dance floor, right? And that defined the culture, just like Studio 54 was sort of in that slipstream. Um, and they just sort of blew up. Uh, they were dominating the charts just the way that the 60s were dominated by the Beatles. And of course, on this soundtrack, there were other musicians that had songs, but they were absolutely the stars. Um, I thought it was really interesting that on that um, same album, uh, Casing the Sunshine Band had uh, Boogie Shoes and Yvonne Elliman, I think is her name. She was the one that If I Can't Have You, which was incidentally written by them. Disco Inferno by The Tramps. Um, but it was really them that were the stars and were the breakout stars. Um, somebody in the chat put uh, that How Deep Is Your Love is, you know, uh, such a great song. And it is. I was planning it on playing it. I'm going to go ahead and do that because it is such a beautiful song. Um, again, just imminently hummable. I find myself humming it all the time. It's so beautiful. Um, it, uh, it, it, there's also actually a really great Calvin Harris disciple song, how, how deep is your love? Completely different. Uh, it's, it's also a kind of a dance, uh, song, but it's very, very different. But this reason why, how deep is your love is interesting is this sort of charted in 1977 became number one in the U United States and number three in the UK. Why is that interesting? Because punk was coming up. And so the fact that, these guys were able to chart during a sort of movement, which is almost wasn't explicitly anti-disco. And by the way, there was a backlash, but we're going to talk about that uh, because the Bee Gees career, the re part of the reason it's so extraordinary is how they went up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, it wasn't sort of like when you think about the Beatles that were kind of steady superstars, the Bee Gees were like in favor and then hated uh, and then in favor and then hated and then always thought of as less serious than, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or as musicians, when in fact, not only by the numbers, but just by the sheer artistry and the unique sort of sounds that they contributed to music in general, they're up there, right? But I want to go ahead and play this beautiful love song, which is How Deep Is Your Love? And here we go. <laughs> I feel you too. 
touch me in the pouring rain And the moment that you wander far from me I wanna feel you in my arms again And you come to me on a summer breeze Keep me warm in your love, in your softness The tones of that song and the harmonies are so beautiful. When, you know, and I'm thinking, I mean, growing up, I considered this elevator music. I was like, oh my God, if you would hear it, I was like, what, am I in an elevator? Like, why are they playing this? Um, and now, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old. I'm listening to this and I'm like, it is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And I find myself, as I've said like 3,000 times on this episode, humming it all the time. Um, 
I do want to talk about one important thing. The Bee Gees introduced this sort of idea of uh, a falsetto, which had actually been around uh, with other artists. I'm going to play you a little clip, but it kind of became their trademark sound. And I also believe while it defined them and is one of just the most gorgeous things about their music, I think it was also kind of the thing that made people sort of laugh at them to kind of see these guys that were like, especially Barry Gibb, you know, giant centaur with a beard and mustache and this flowing hair and his shirt open down to his, you know, navel with the big medallion, like with this voice coming. It was scary to me as a little kid, I'll be honest, uh, when I saw that. But I think it kind of made them being taken less seriously versus wow, that's like an amazing voice that he's able to sing that way and that these guys are able to harmonize it. So how did that sort of happen? Well, I'm going to tell you, I've got a little clip, uh, which is going to talk to you about what the origins of the falsetto were. And you're going to have multiple people talking here. Barry, uh, Robin is speaking. Um, There's also Arif Mardin, who was actually a famed Turkish-American music producer, uh, was sort of the Turkish uh, mafia with ah- Ahmet Erdogan uh, from Atlantic Records. And he worked very closely with the Bee Gees and the sort of falsetto uh, was sometimes attributed to him. But you will see, he says, I did nothing. We just created the, the, the space for them to do it. So here's a little bit of the origins of that iconic falsetto. We're completing nights on Broadway. We've just done most of the vocal tracks. Usually, you know, at the end, you know, you have some ad-libs or some kind of thing to take us away from the original melody and have some fun. I suggested to the band, hey, you know, we really need some kind of background parts that come in and express the meaning of the song. He was looking for, for one of us to scream in tune, if possible. I said, I'll go out and give it a shot. Are we almost ready? Let's do it. So he went out there and he did the, um, the Blame It Alls. Everybody in the control room woke up and it was like, oh, this is a new sound. I was thinking, my God, I don't, where is this coming from? I can do this. My whole life I didn't know I could do this. Everybody's giving me credit. No, he was singing it. I said, keep on doing it. We brought it out of this all night. I mean, we weren't the first to sing falsetto. We love the stylistics, we love the spinners, the delphonics. They were all falsetto, these singers. There's something to be said about all music, is that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. The falsetto is very much a black tradition, but they've translated it into this interesting interpretation of soul. But I guess more importantly for me, it's emotional. Because we were so excited about this, we started writing songs for this voice. It created another dimension of sound. That's what we thought, you know, emotionally. It became another icon of the Gibbs. Everybody knew when you heard that falsetto, that's the Bee Gees. So as you can see by that clip, um, it was, you know, that, um, that, uh, 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 
uh, I'm looking for the white word, the, um, that convention of a singing in that high sort of uh, voice for men existed uh, in, of course, in black music and soul music, but the Bee Gees took that and incorporated it into their music and kind of brought it to sort of a general population. And, and you can hear Arif saying, I didn't do anything. It came out of him. Um, and so I thought that was sort of a nice clip. So it really became kind of their sort of trademark. Um, and so anytime you hear that falsetto, you're like, oh, there goes Barry. I hear Robin coming in. Um, but so what happened is they had this extraordinary success, uh, found themselves, uh, you know, quote unquote, overnight sort of superstars. Uh, it happened in like a six month to a year sort of uh, period. And then all of a sudden, um, you had kind of what was a backlash. Um, there was a, uh, and they always talk about uh, this particular sort of aspect of the backlash. There was a, a DJ, a radio DJ who hated, it was sort of a shock jock, like a pre-Howard, Howard Stern, uh, who hated disco and basically invited people to come and uh, burn their disco records. Um, and this took place, it actually happened under the Major League Baseball uh, moniker. It was a Major League Baseball promotion and it happened in Chicago. And they basically said, hey, everybody, come down. Uh, we're going to blow up or burn all of your disco records. Um, and for every record, you get like a, a discounted admission into the ballpark. So all of these people showed up with records um, and it ended up turning into a, a little bit of a riot because um, uh, uh, a whole bunch of people showed up. Uh, I think it was like they'd hoped like um, for uh, a crowd of, uh, I think it was 20,000, but 50,000 people showed up, um, including all of the fans of the shock dog. Um, and they were sneaking in after the gates were closed and um, they were, you know, people were throwing records. Obviously, that's pretty dangerous. They blew up a bunch of different records. And then afterwards, you know, uh, these people like stormed the field and the police had to come and, and, and sort of break it up. Um, but what's really interesting about that time is you have today many sort of critics looking back and saying, hmm many of the records that were actually being thrown into that pile were not disco records. They were records by mm. black artists. Um, and I can't think about, you know, help but think about sort of the parallels of things that we've seen sort of in uh, recent times, right? They were by black artists or gay artists. Um, and they weren't necessarily the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees ended up getting uh, you know, hit very, very badly as a result of this. Um, but uh, the the sort of uh, you know one one hey, this was a backlash uh, against the Bee Gees. It was a backlash against disco. It was a backlash against homosexuals. It was a backlash black artists because this was all sort of uh, you know uh, they characterize it as white male fans of rock and roll that were coming and uh, destroying these records. And so there was something that was uh, slightly villainous uh, that has been alluded to by many critics looking back on the situation. Um, and you can find lots of clips of folks sort of talking about that. But that sort of was kind of like an iconic um, sort of event uh, that sort of heralded a, uh, a backlash for the Bee Gees. And what's interesting is they have said many, many times, 
you know, disco was one of the things we did. What what about the other, you know, 15 years before that where we were playing sort of, you know, 60s slash folk slash music that was, you couldn't tell them apart from the Beatles sometimes, right? If you closed your eyes and listened to the music uh, in terms of the genre of music. Um, but they became so associated with disco. And again, I think the visuals had a huge part to play in this. Um, the fact that Saturday Night Fever was such an overnight success. Um, and the fact that, you know, sort of the whole Studio 54, the exclusiveness, you know, I mean, all of that stuff started in the gay and black clubs, right? And was brought up to the forefront by things like disco music and clubs. Um, and so this was kind of a, a backlash against that. What ended up happening was, um, uh, you know, U.S. radio almost overnight started to ban disco, uh, which is, again, extraordinary if you think about it. So this event takes place. There's kind of like this disco sucks, disco dumb after the disco demolition night. Um, and so, you know, the uh, starts. Um, you know, and it starts to the kind of joke, the hairy chest and the high voices and the clothes jokes, they become these targets. And it's funny that those jokes continue in today. I'm sure that many of you seen the Saturday Night Live with, um, uh, 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 you know, Justin Timberlake uh, kind of making, I think actually Barry Gibb shows up on actually one of the episodes, but they pretend to be the Bee Gees. They're making fun of them. And they're clearly, you know, they're kind of poking fun at them, but it's also a little bit of a tribute, but they're poking fun at them. Um, and they're poking fun at sort of the image that the Bee Gees had. So it's something that still, you know, kind of uh, has, has carried through to today. But, uh, you know, um, they, people like, you know, Barry Gibb sort of, was, you know, we don't understand. And you would see they started de dressing differently immediately as well. But he would say, we don't understand why we are being targeted for this, right? There were so many other artists. But again, they were kind of the standard bearers. Um, and um, sadly, uh, Maurice Gibb, you know, they took this very hard. Maurice Gibb started to do drugs and uh, started abusing alcohol, had run-ins with the law for disorderly conduct. Um, and so they were sort of trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? So um, they made sort of a non-disco album, but, um, you know, uh, the antics sort of were, were overshadowing the music and, uh, you know, all sorts of weird things were happening. You know, Robin broke into his own home, uh, uh, you know, because he was sure his wife, his ex-wife was cheating on it. So there are all of these things that were non-music that were happening, but certainly were being kind of pushed along by the fact that they'd experienced this extraordinary stardom, you know, overnight. And then again, almost overnight, they were sort of pariahs. Um, and so they decided consciously that this was over for them, uh, that they had sort of their, their run. And, uh, and it's kind of sat and you think about it, you're like, what, like, how could this have happened? <clears throat> they decided it was over and um, they decided to write songs for other people. And so, um, Barry Gibb ended up working with Barbara Streisand. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, they started to write songs for other artists and decided maybe their, you know, maybe their future lay in, excuse me, I'm going to have a sip of water. Maybe their future lay in songwriting. Of course, that's got to experience the kind of stardom that they had. So Maurice got even more depressed. Uh, they started to not see each other as often. Um, 
And really, um, you know, it's funny because I, I've, I've seen interviews where uh, Barry Gibb has said, you know, Maurice never really recovered. Uh, he took it so hard that uh, he really kind of went into this spiral of addiction. Uh, and, you know, in 2003, he sadly ended up passing away of alcoholic ailments. Um, but it was, you know, it was something that you can imagine was uh, extraordinarily difficult to deal with. Uh, it like sort of being at the highest of the high. And then all of a sudden, you know, now nobody wants to listen to your music. You're a pariah, but you're a phenomenal songwriter. So they're writing songs for all of these different artists. And um, one of the songs I wanted to play a little bit of it for you. Uh, they were you know, diverse and including for their brother, Andy Gabe, which I'm going to share a little bit about uh, in a bit. But they had a younger brother who was also, you know, sort of, they say that he was a split image of Barry, the oldest brother, uh, except without the facial hair. He, in his own right, became a heartthrob. And I do remember this as a little kid. I remember him being on covers of like, there were magazines like Teen Beat and Tiger Beat. I don't know if they exist anymore for girls. And they would have like, you know, Scott Baio and Michael Damien and uh, Andy Gibb and um, uh, he became a, a star in his own right, but they uh, had started to write songs for him. As I mentioned, there were so many different artists that they wrote songs for. Um, uh, Barbara Streisand, uh, uh, Guilty, uh, and 1983, they wrote a song for Kenny and Dolly, and I'm actually going to play that because we've done a little tribute to Dolly Parton. It's called Islands in the Stream. I think it's a beautiful song. So I'm going to play a little bit for you. Uh, but uh, Dionne, Dionne Warwick, uh, Heartbreaker. Um, and so they thought that they were going to sort of be in the background uh, writing songs, uh, which is sort of sad when you think about it. Um, but that's what they sort of resigned themselves to. And so I want to play you a little bit of Islands in the Stream, which was one of uh, the really big hits for Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, but was written by the Bee Gees. <laughs>
So I just wanted to play a little bit of that. It's That's also a really beautiful song. And again, I remember that being on the radio when I was a little kid and not appreciating it the way that I should have. So uh, I'm really hating on myself for all of that. But, um, you know, and I just, I want to hit home that when we talk about the backlash against the Bee Gees, like this was not like, you know, um, you know, people like burning a record and then it was over. I mean, these guys got death threats. Um, they had to have security. I mean, it was like, I gotta say, I mean, in America, we get crazy about stuff. It was like extraordinarily like scary for them. Um, because they'd been such huge stars and it was sort of almost mythological the way that they had this amazing run, you know, from the mid seventies to right before the eighties. And, you know, um, Barry Gibb, actually says this. He says, Fever was number one every week. It wasn't just like a hit album. It was number one every single week for 25 weeks. It was an amazing, extraordinarily crazy time. I remember not being able to answer the phone. And I remember people climbing over my walls. I was quite grateful when it stopped. It was too unreal. In the long run, your life is better if it's not like that on a constant basis. Nice though it was. Um, and so, you know, you have this meteoric rise. It's phenomenally, like, awesome for, like, two seconds. And then it it swings the pendulum. I mean, this is literally a, a mythology. It's like a Greek mythology. The pendulum swings to the other side where these guys are getting death threats, uh, bomb threats. They have lost all radio support overnight, which is, i.e., death in the music industry. Um, and so... Um, you know, the the music industry just kind of put them squarely into that disco um, sort of box. And suddenly, overnight, everybody started hating them. So they're writing songs. for And just think about that. Think how heartbreaking it is when you love being a performer. You're writing music. It's your everything. And for creative people, it's especially very, very tough, right? And these kind of things drive people to do extraordinarily harmful things to themselves. And uh, in the case of the Bee Gees, you know, thankfully, nothing, you know, uh, was like a direct sort of result of that. But as I mentioned, you know, Maurice's alcoholism and the drug addiction, and all of them sort of took it very hard. And, uh, uh, you know, Barry says that Maurice never sort of recovered from that time. He'd had problems since then, and then, you know, ended up passing away. Um, but as they started writing songs for others, um, one of the other things that kind of started to happen um, was that their youngest brother, as I'd mentioned, Andy Gibb, started to have a career of his own. And I think it's just sort of interesting to quickly visit him because he had a couple of hits and was like a bona fide heartthrob. Um, he was also a lot of tabloid uh, fodder. He was dating uh, Victoria Principal, who was an actress on a uh, show called Dallas, which was something everybody would watch. It was Dallas and Dynasty. Um, I do remember being really little, my parents watching that. And she was older than him. So it was very modern. She was like a decade older than him. They met on a talk show. Uh, I think it was the John Davidson show. And you can actually... Um, Google it and find the video. It's really funny because he's really embarrassed because his crush is revealed on that show. And that's basically when they, they met and, you know, ended up hooking up after that and then were together forever. Um, excuse me. Um, 
but um, Barry was writing songs for him. Uh, you know, he was really interested in kind of um, going to the music industry, watching the fame of his brothers. Um, and so he had come to Miami. They had sort of a home base in Miami and their, their family, their parents, they were very, very close family. All of them got married young, had children, uh, you know, their parents came over. Um, and so these were really sort of, um, you know, times when the family was together in the United States. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Andy developed a uh, Coke problem um, and it ended up uh, ending his relationship with Victoria Principal. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, while he had a couple of hits, um, Shadow Dancing uh, was one, I think another one, I think it was called uh, I Just Want to Be Your Everything. Uh, and uh, also, you know, co-written or written by Barry. Um, some of these became number ones in the United States. Um, and so he was using basically his brother's infrastructure uh, to get famous, but he was also just a great singer and very talented. Apparently he was very sensitive. I think he did a little bit of acting. He also started to host, there was a show called Solid Gold. I don't know if anybody, I absolutely remember this because there was no MTV. So Solid Gold was, it's actually really weird when you think about it now. It would basically count down the top 10 songs and they would have like the Solid Gold dancers dance to them. Um, and I always remember there was an African-American woman with really long hair. She was like the star dancer. I don't know how I knew, but I think she was like featured a lot. Um, but they would have these dancers kind of dancing, doing these dramatic interpretive dances. He hosted that show for a while, but what started happening to him was his drug addiction ended up catching up with him. He was not showing up to work. Uh, his brothers kind of knew what were, was, were going on. Uh, they had conversations with him. Uh, Barry Giboff and says, the last conversation I had with him, I regret. It was a tough love conversation. You know, I told him all of the things you see here, you know, the beautiful home you have, the cars. It will be gone if you don't stop. Uh, he went into a depression because Victoria Principal broke up with him and just said, you know, I'm not putting up with this. It's either me or the drugs. Uh, he was not able to um, stop. Um, and uh, sadly, he also had a daughter. He had a first marriage, actually, I should say, in Australia. He had a daughter out of that marriage, but again, came to the United States. These guys all married very young, divorced, um, uh, and uh, showed up and ended up, you know, really... Um, kind of ruining his life uh, with drugs and alcohol. Um, and sadly, uh, even though he had sort of everything to live for, right? He was a, uh, a, uh, uh, a sex symbol. Uh, he was uh, making music that was charting. He was the younger brother of these, you know, phenomenally talented uh, brothers who were a group. Um, but uh, they ended up... Um, not being enough to kind of keep him alive. And eventually uh, Stigwood, who also was managing him, had to let him go because of the behavioral problems and the cocaine. Um, and uh, eventually um, he ended up sort of passing away. He had gone to Betty Ford, had gone to rehab, uh, but he was, and he, he, they thought he had beat his addictions, but um, his death actually happened uh, at, when he was only 30 years old, which is really tragic, of a weak heart, um, <clears throat> excuse me, which was damaged, they say, by the cocaine. Um, and um, there was also the piece that he never recovered from sort of the breakup with Victoria Principal. Um, and so it was just sort of a, a very sad, tragic story of somebody that was a really bright star with an amazing future that just started going downhill, uh, you know, of his own accord. I mean, missing 
you know, uh, rehearsals <clears throat> for music and for television, excuse me. And, um, you know, not showing up for things that he had contracted for. And then in the end, he ended up passing away. And uh, Barry says that his father, he said something in my father died the day that Andy died. And he never recovered from that. He was never the same man. So while these folks have had this extraordinarily uh, sort of fruitful and um, uh, uh, you know, active and the uh, life which has contributed so much to the world, there was incredible tragedy. Um, and um, you know, when you think about it, it, it's I'm going to play you at the very end a quote that um, will probably bring tears to your eyes about what Barry says about that. But um, uh, so Andy Gibb ends up passing away. Uh, and that, of course, is a shock. This was a very, very close family, even though they were sort of fighting uh, and having their little tiffs. Um, and so that was something that, uh, you know, the family and, uh, as Barry says, the father never recovered from, uh, he was brokenhearted about that. Um, but what started to happen was, um, you, you had the Bee Gees coming back together to, you know, do different, you know, projects, put out a couple of records. Uh, and then, um, uh, I think it was Maurice that passed away first, as I mentioned, I think it was 2003, uh, and eventually, uh, Robin ended up, uh, passing away in 2013 of cancer. Um, and so this is all, you know, uh, kind of a, a tragic sort of end. Uh, and Barry often says that, um, you know, he, it's funny because Robin actually would often say that, you know, Maurice and I were twins and I can't believe he's gone. Uh, I can't believe that, uh, uh, you know, this this guy that I was so close to is gone. I just kind of imagine that he's somewhere else. It's really heartbreaking, actually, to watch these interviews. Where I just imagine him being somewhere else. Um, and, of course, when, you know, uh, when Robin ended up dying, that ended up leaving, actually, Barry uh, as the sort of sole brother. Uh, the guy that was kind of the tallest, the most iconic, the one that probably got the most attention for his looks and for kind of that that sort of flowy hair, like centaur look, uh, ended up sort of being uh, the last brother standing. Um, and it is, it's sort of a very poignant story. Um, you know, as I'd mentioned, there were many sort of awards that were accorded to them in later years, many of which uh, Barry had to accept on his own, along with the children of his brothers. Um, but uh, I think it is a, uh, it is telling that uh, I'm going to play a clip uh, that I'm going to actually let just Barry say it instead of sort of narrating uh, what happened. But um, I will say that uh, uh, in 2017, uh, Barry Gibb performed uh, at Glastonbury Festival. I think it was 2017. Yeah, 2017 alone. He played some Bee Gees songs uh, and uh, it was like phenomenal. Like the crowd went crazy. Uh, there is a... Um, uh, a biopic that is being uh, in the works with Kenneth Branagh uh, directing, apparently, um, so about the Bee Gees. Um, and uh, Barry did a solo tour in 2013 uh, to honor his brothers after their death and their collective music. And he's appeared to, he's continued to be, he's got uh, five children and one of them 
a couple of them are musicians, I believe, and he's continued to appear solo and with his son. But um, you can tell when he talks about his brothers, he's really not over it. And, you know, when I think about this, the entire saga of the Bee Gees, I think about these guys making it against all odds, right? They write a letter to Robert Stigwood. It's somehow, I mean, Brian Epstein could have just taken the tape and thrown it onto a pile. And uh, by the retellings of how they were discovered, it sounds like he almost did. It was like, just give it to Robert. Robert's Australian. These guys are Australian. Let Robert handle it. And fortunately, Robert Stigwood heard it and said, I've never heard harmonies like that, you know, as you heard in the interview. And so they ascend, you know, to become a musical star, and especially in those days, it's such an extraordinary thing. Um, and then they go on to even surpass that and become these superstars and cultural phenomenon and define the age and then have kind of all of the issues um, that come along with that sort of fame. And then comes the backlash overnight. And then they lose, you know, the most vulnerable of them, their youngest brother who follows in their footsteps. Uh, and then one by one, they sort of pass away. And yet when you look at the record and we don't sort of think of them or accord them uh, or, you know, I mean, very honestly respect them in the same way that the Beatles or Michael Jackson or all of the other musicians that we think of, whatever your musical tastes are. I mean, we can argue about, you know, bands, but, you know, numbers are numbers. And when you look at the number of records um, and uh, the number of singles that have charted there are a handful of folks that have done it consistently over decades, you know, and the Bee Gees have had, you know, number one hits like every decade since they've been around. Um, you know, it is a heroic and a tragic story. And when I think about it, it really does sort of stir me and, uh, you know, bring tears to my eyes. And so I wanted to uh, wrap up this session with playing you a quote uh, that Barry Gibb uh, offers when he is talking about uh, his brothers. Um, and this is uh, recently. And then I want to end with playing two songs, uh, which I think are kind of representative of the Bee Gees. Uh, the first uh, is going to be uh, Night Fever. Uh, and the second is going to be You Should Be Dancing. Um, and when I also think of this, I mean, you know, there are folks that have kind of, uh, like the Foo Fighters that did a album of Bee Gees. Uh, they covered the Bee Gees, which I thought was fabulous. I thought it was a wonderful tribute. Um, they, by the way, they got some bad reviews for that, which I thought was sort of crazy. But, um, and Dave Grohl says that uh, it was really easy to sing in that falsetto. He was like, I never tried to sing like this before. And it's like the easiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> which I think is really funny. But I'd like to play you this quote, and uh, and then I want to end with these two songs, uh, happy songs, I think, which uh, kind of uh, uh, showcase the Bee Gees at the height of, of their fame and their power. So I'd like to play this quote from now Sir Barry Gibb uh, about his brother's uh, and the beaches. When I think about it now, I think about how it all sort of started. We just had this dream and we thought, well, what do we want to be famous for? It turns out it was the songwriting. And I think everything we set out to do, we did. 
against all odds. I can't honestly come to terms with the fact that they're not here anymore. Never been able to do that. I'm always reliving it. It's always what would Robin think or what would Morris think. And Andy. It never goes away. And what I wanted to say earlier is that I'd rather have them all back here and no hits at all. so beautiful it brings tears to my eyes Barry singing and that beautiful harmony that's created by Robin chiming in um, so I'm gonna play some songs uh, that uh, uh, as I mentioned are uh, of happier times and uh, I'm gonna say good night